Hello and welcome to another episode of The Deal Flow Show. I'm JP Maroney, your host, along with my co-host for this episode, Mr. Paul Nicolini. And we have a very special guest, Peter Blaney from Enduran Ventures, and uh, super excited. I've heard about you. I've uh, heard from George about you as well as the interview and pre-call that you had with our team. Super excited to get to know you and your company a little bit better, some of the deals that you're working on and really tap into your storehouse of knowledge over the years of doing lots of deals. Because the Deal Flow Show is not only to introduce people to great guests that have an interesting background and good stories to tell, but it's also to share with others about how you vet a deal, what you look for in great people, how you put together deal teams, the whole process. So we're gonna be asking some of those questions as well. But I'd like to start by finding out go way back as far as you can and talk about how you got started in the business. Can you share with us a little bit about that? I, I got started in the business um, almost 40 years ago um, because I decided that being a foreign correspondent was very hazardous as an occupation. I might get killed. I was in a couple of war zones and made the decision that I wanted a lot of adventure. So I did an MBA and started my own company right afterwards. Um, that's 40 years back. And it was basically, I wanted an exciting life. What were some of the early deals that y'all did when you got started? Well, the first thing I did when I got started it was shortly after graduating from an MBA, I started my own company. Um, and it was in an industry um, that I had a fair amount of experience in because of family. Um, and commercialized some technology that came out of a university um, and started my own company. Um, and that was my first deal. Um, so over the 40 years, I've been on all sides of the table, an investor, an entrepreneur, a fund manager, and so on. But I started out um, as a, you know, an entrepreneur starting up a little company. Peter, what's the largest deal that you've been a part of? Um, the largest one I've done uh, was a company called Biox, B-I-O-X. It was the world's first continuous process biodiesel plant. And that was $125 million. Um, we ended up um, taking the company public for a while on the Toronto Stock Exchange. And then after that, it was taken out private again. But that was the largest single light deal I did. And what year was that? That would have been in the uh, late 90s. Can you describe where the company is today, the kind of things that y'all are working on and what you're looking for in terms of the future? I've always been in the biotech space um, and across the spectrum in biotech. So um, one of the earliest projects I did was a company called Performance Plants, which was an egg biotech play. In that situation, what we were trying to do was get um, crops ready for climate change. So we were making major agro crops, drought tolerant, salt tolerant, heat tolerant, cold tolerant, wh whatever nature was going to throw at them. And we ended up licensing most of that technology out to major agro companies in Europe, the United States and Asia. Um, but it was kind of a start getting ready for climate change. We were concerned about what was happening socially. Um, something like the Club of Rome was very popular at the time, telling us that we weren't going to have enough to eat. Um, so we were trying to get ready. And um, it was a 
driven in part by um, adventure, but also driven in part by uh, a desire to make a contribution um, to pressing global needs for humanity. It sounds very um, noble, I suppose, um, but actually that is what we were trying to do. Well, it's a good point. Uh, we talk all the time. And the other, in fact, with the team the other day, we were doing a video and I said, one of the greatest ways to build something truly extraordinary is to find a big problem and find a solution for that problem. So that that's obviously where you guys have found a place to plug yourself into. Um, how do you see going forward? We're obviously hearing related to the whether it's the pandemic or the the plandemic or whatever people want to call it right now, but what's going on, um, how do you see things working out agriculturally? Because I keep hearing rumors about shortages and things like that. So what what is the perspective from from you and your company? You know, I can't really comment on today, whether food shortages are going to be a big concern in, in the near term or not. Um, I think that we have made enormous advances over the last couple of decades in biotech, and that would include certainly agricultural biotech. So we can do a lot more than um, anyone would ever have imagined um, in terms of developing functional foods, putting proteins into foods that aren't there now putting vitamins and and so on essential nutrients so i think it's it's making a very positive contribution to the world um and and playing out honestly pretty much the way i expected it to how do y'all keep your pipeline full in terms of deal flow for your organization that's a, a critical question and um you know you, you have a couple of options um, one of them is to wait for someone to throw a business plan over the transom and you take a look at it and it looks cool and you want to do it. That's really not the way I operate. Um, I identify problems I'm interested in. And then I find the first thing I look for is the people that can do something about it. And then I look for a technologic, technological fix that, that we can use to address the problem. But I, I don't wait for things to happen. I, I sort of identify what I'm particularly interested in solving in terms of big social problems. And a few years back, we started referring to ourselves as venture philanthropists. Part, partly that reflected our age, um, being closer to the exit than the entrance, but it also just seemed to be consistent with what we had done over the 35 years. So, yeah, I, I don't have any trouble whatsoever with deal flow because we create our, our own deals. I like it. Yeah. Uh, Peter, being in biotech, how has or have you seen an uptick in the business uh, due to COVID? Well, I started seeing a downtick uh, for sure. Um, I, I, I had spent two years um, getting a deal negotiated with an investor. First of all, finding the right kind of investor for the, the project. Um, we got through extensive um, diligence with them. We even got to the point where every single document in the deal had been vetted and we'd gone through it line by line. Both the investors and, and ourselves were happy with it. Um, we didn't have to dot any more I's or cross any more T's. But we got to that finish line on March 15th of this year. And... There's a French term, force majeure, 
um, which I'm sure many entrepreneurs have become familiar with. So that deal got shelved um, and I had to go back and start over again. So that was very discouraging and that was an outcome of um, the, the COVID pandemic. Um, I, I noticed it about that time of year, we like to try and get our money from family offices um, as much as possible. And the doors closed everywhere for several months. There's just nothing happening at all. And, uh, and many people headed to the sidelines and wanted to be um, cash, you know, heavy on cash because no one was sure how it would play out and, and people weren't sure what they might need to be doing next. But I have noticed um, along with the sun, um, a lot of light has come since. And I think the markets are opening back up for early stage investment. Um, I think it's, it's getting reasonably good again as, as a, an environment. So while it started out doing something that was very difficult for entrepreneurs, I think it shut the markets right down. I think there's just a lot of demand now for um, alternative investment and for early stage and, and it's coming back and particularly biotech. Um, it's, it's becoming much more um, in fashion than it had been in previous years. You said something about family office and the money. We've experienced the exact same thing. Uh, George, who uh, I, I know you know and set some of this up with you with the show, but uh, you know we've had the same conversations. So much of the family office money is just sitting on the sidelines and very opportunistically waiting for what are very likely going to be some good opportunities coming over the next 18 to 24 months. But you also talked about that being a setback, hitting that wall and having to basically start over. My assumption is over the last 40 years, that's not the first time. How do you walk through the mental process? What do you do when you hit the wall um, to reset and kind of get yourself prepared to go back again for another deal? Well, it's tough. I mean, it's you're talking about you know, really tough experiences. Um, but I think most, most entrepreneurs can bounce back pretty quickly. That's, I think, you know, the, the buzzword today is resiliency. Um, you've got to be able to come back from adversity. And, and I, I mentioned earlier, you know, we call our company um, Indoran Ventures, and it came from Miguel Indoran, the Spanish cyclist. Uh, at any stage of the tour is a very tough experience. The entire tour is unbelievably tough. I think business is the same, especially when you're in early stage. You're just going to have constant ups and downs um, and huge disappointments. And you have to be able to pivot on a dime. And it takes great mental flexibility, which is really one of the things I, I appreciate about the occupation. The fact that you have to be flexible. Um, so... It's, I think, a trait that sort of comes naturally to me. Um, but if you start out believing in the proposition, and I said I like to solve a problem that, that I think is really important for humanity, if I get in an adverse shock, um, yeah, it's very disappointing. Very but disappointing. given that I really believe in the mission and believe in what I'm trying to do, um, a setback like that, it's not so hard to recover from because you just keep a your eye on, on the prize, you keep a look on, on the end zone where you want to go. And, and if it's solving a big problem, a setback isn't that hard to deal with. You mentioned prior to your entrepreneurial world, um, prior to the MBA being a foreign correspondent. Any of those skill sets or 
connections or any of that history support you or skills that you've been able to adapt to the deal making process? Well, communication is really important. Um, being able to express yourself clearly um, and being able to write is also pretty valuable. And, and it's, it's a skill that a, a lot of entrepreneurs come from a technical background, a science background. So communication and writing is probably more of a challenge for them. But if you love to write, which I do, um, you know, writing business plans can be a lot of fun because you can put some really positive stuff in, in, in it. Um, anecdotes and stories and frames of reference and conveying information, all of that stuff, you know, it came out of, I, I suppose in part, a journalism background, but um, I really came to the conclusion that journalism was like making sausages and I did not want to do it. So um, I didn't spend a lot of time um, working as a, a, a journalist. Great. Peter, can you talk to us about the evaluation process you go through when you're looking at a deal? and your due diligence process that you might have. Sure, I can do that. And, and so many people find this difficult. Um, for some reason, people find it often the most challenging part of, of the whole investment cycle. I think that's unfortunate. There's really how I deal with it is through frame, my frame of reference. There's only three aspects to a deal you need to be concerned about three broad aspects. The first and foremost is the people, the people you're investing in. The second thing you need to focus on is the technology, and thirdly, the markets. And I recommend you start with people. Um, a lot of people in the venture business have a science or, or engineering background, and they tend to focus on the technology first. And I've seen a lot of people fall in love with the molecule, or a formula and get into a deal because they loved the technology and they look at the people later. Um, and I think it's just getting it completely backwards. You need to focus on the people. Are they competent? Are they honest? Can you get along with them? Do you want to spend time with them? Um, are they team players? You need to really focus on the entrepreneur first and foremost before you ever look at what they're trying to sell you, try to get an assessment of the individual. Then I recommend you look at the markets um, because if they're characterized by low entry barriers, heavy competition and not much profit, um, it's a mistake to look at the technology at all. Um, and then thirdly would be the technology, which is where most people start and I think it's backwards. Um, but as good as the technology is, that's fine. The reason why I say focus on the people first is in almost every case I've been involved in, within six months of getting into the project, the initial technology's out the window and gone, and you've made a pivot to something else. It's a new technology or an adaption to the technology that no one foresaw. And what makes the difference there? The entrepreneur, the guy that you should have, or gal that you should have been focused on in the first instance. So. That's kind of my approach to diligence. Um, I just look in those three broad categories and I, I start with people and um, just sort of work my way through it. I love it. Bet the jockey, right? Bet on the jockey.
Once again, this is J.P. Maroney and Paul Nicolini, and uh, this is The Deal Flow Show. If you're watching or listening to The Deal Flow Show, you can get additional episodes, previous and future episodes, by going to thedealflowshow.com. Um, our guest today is Peter Blaney. And Peter, you said something talking about um, a lot of people look at the technology first, and I've heard many, many entrepreneurs over the years, 30 years of building companies myself, I've advised a lot of other entrepreneurs, set on boards, and a lot of times people go out and create the solution and then try to figure out who's willing to buy it. And it's, uh, it's like backwards, right? And many years ago I heard one of my mentors said, never, ever, ever sell something people don't already want to buy. And uh, it made a lot of sense. It'll serve, serve you well for a long, long time. So I love your idea of finding the great people. How do you keep your pipeline full? I got a text message from one of my buddies. He puts together um, boards and he invited me to come on another board and uh, today and he's like, you're a perfect fit for that. And he's got this little deck of cards, right? I, every time I talk to him, he's looking to place people and things like that. For yourself, how are you keeping sort of a portfolio of contacts over the years and figuring out who would be best placed or best suited for a certain deal that you're putting together? Um, I start before the back of the envelope in a deal. So um, if, if the back of the envelope's already out and there's writing on it, I'm getting there late. Um, that's my first point. Um, I, I uh, Because I start there and usually go all the way through to, if the exit's an IPO, I'm all the way from the very, very beginning to the very end. Um, I don't really have a problem with deal flow. I think the later the stage of the investment that you choose to make, the more deal flow gets problematic. Um, so if you're a late stage investor, I probably don't have a lot of advice for you. Um, if you're early stage, um, you don't have a problem with deal flow. Um, there's a bazillion deals out there. In fact, there's way too many deals. I, I would think a question I'd be more expecting would be how do you possibly deal with the deluge? There's so much stuff coming at you. Um, that's, that's more of a problem. I think for early stage investors, the, the deal flow. Yeah. I think it reflects stage of investment. Um, and so since I tend to define, you know, sort out which problems I want to get involved with in the first place um, and then look for the people to do it. I, I don't, really have a problem with deal flow. As for a stable of people that you can rely on, um, you know, I certainly have a, a, a stable of accountants and lawyers and people that I've relied on and worked with over decades that are certainly there for me when I need them. But the specific entrepreneurs or board members, um, you know, if, if I was looking for a board member for Biox, which was the biodiesel company, not likely that a, a director from the agricultural biotech company performance plants is going to be the right fit. Um, so I, I don't really find I can pick people out of one previous situation and drop them into another one very much. I, I pretty much looking for new, new, new blood. And one of my first um, chairman, um, Jeff Highland, who was the CEO of Shockor? He he made a point of telling me that um, you need fresh blood. You always need to be bringing in fresh blood. 
So rather than look for people that have been tried and true as entrepreneurs somewhere, I, I'm more apt to go for a fresh jockey. What are some of the characteristics of a deal or a person that would lead to a great deal for you? What do you look for? Well, because I start with people, um, when I'm trying to raise money, and, and I've been doing fundraising for decades now, um, so it's an activity I've been doing for a long time, and no matter what technology I'm in, I'm in the fundraising business. I start with the people, and I try to make a connection with the people on the other side of the table. Um, try to find out what they want, what they need, what they like, what they don't like. It's a lot like selling, really. Um, one of the first mistakes that everyone makes when they sell is they present their goods immediately. They say, hello, hi, how are you? Here's my pitch. And I think it's a huge mistake. You got to qualify the buyer. That's just basic sales training. You really need to understand the people on the other side. So I started with that approach um, and I look for people that I think I can form a connection with. Um, the concept of negotiating terms with um, a blank slate on the other side, someone I don't know, someone I haven't made any contact with, I have established no understanding with. Honestly, I wouldn't know how to go about it and I wouldn't recommend anyone do it. So how do I start? I look for people that I can connect with. And, and if they strike me as good people and they're genuinely interested in what I'm doing and there's a genuine fit with what they've done in the past or what they want to do and what they need. Um, then the terms, the next thing I look for is somebody who can share. And I often ask people this whole question, do you want a great deal out of me or a good deal? And if they say a great deal, I say, Hmm, that means there's not much room for me. Um, if they say they're looking for a good deal, I think they're probably playing win-win and I'm more inclined to go. But yeah, I look for people that um, I can connect with and I look for people who are open to win-wins, genuinely open to win-win, where they want me to do well as, and, and they want to do well themselves. So I don't know if that's a great answer for you, but it's, it's my answer. Let's, let's turn the tables for a moment. So if you, what would your peers or business associates see in you? What would that sound like, your characteristics? What do you bring to the table? <laughs> Another tough question. I don't, you know, how much time, I don't know how much time I spend in the mirror, but um, I, I think people appreciate my determination and perseverance. Um, I think they appreciate the fact that I only come to the table if I genuinely care about what you're doing. So there's some passion there. I, I, I think there's an honesty there, but you know, it's kind of lame for me to say, oh yeah, I'm honest. Um, I believe I am, but I, I think that's, that's what people look for. They're, they're looking for some integrity and hopefully they've, they've seen some in me and they haven't been disappointed. All right, so last night, <laughs> I was watching the series Cobra Kai. <laughs> you know, are you familiar with it? No. It's a it's a spin-off from the old Karate Kid movies. So and it, it started on YouTube and they put it on Netflix. And so I've been watching these episodes. So anyone who's ever watched the old Karate Kid movies, 
will know Ralph Macchio or whatever that was the, the kid yeah. that Mr. Miyagi Mrs. trained. And the blonde-headed kid that he fought at the very end when he did the bird thing, you know, and kicked him. Those two guys are grown men in this new series and their fathers. So it's a very interesting, uh, interesting show. But you have a background and an interest in karate. Anything from karate, um, discipline, thought processes, mindset, anything like that that you feel like has carried over into the deal-making process you feel like is applicable? Karate is not the only sport I do. Um, I do cycling. I do swimming. Um, I do weight training. And over the last 40 years, I have never missed the minimum bar per year was 250 workouts. So I've done that for 40 years. And karate is a big part of that. But it's just keeping yourself as fit as you possibly can because we're in a very stressful business. I found the best way to deal with stress is things like karate. Karate is, um, you, you know, you might spend a thousand hours getting the techniques down, um, the blocks, the kicks, the punches, the basics. Um, to be any good at it, you spend probably 10,000 hours polishing it. And the next nine to 10,000 hours is training the brain, the mind, not the body. So keeping yourself really clear um, in your thinking, um, I find athletics, karate, and other things really good for that. It's really good for the stress. Um, karate itself, um, it, it, it's really good for giving you mental focus. I love it. Great answer. Peter, what kind of people would you like to connect with from our audience and also from our past guests? You know, my ideal investors, let me talk about Biox for an example. When I came to the deal, um, the, the entrepreneurs, I came very late to this one. They had a working prototype um, going and it looked like a Rube Goldberg machine. It had binder twine and duct tape and, you know, pipes all over the place and it stank um, because they were converting animal renderings into fuel. So they had a signed term sheet from the largest venture cap group in Canada. And I came to them and I said, look, I think I can do something more for you than they can. Well, what's that? I brought two strategic partners to the table. One was an oil and gas pipeline company that makes oil and gas pipelines for 40 or 50 countries around the world. The other was, um, a chemical processing company that makes car interiors for every major automaker on the planet. I recruited those two companies and their CEOs to get involved in the project. So what I had was companies that had their head office down the road from me. It was close by. I had access to the top level management in the firm. I had access to their scientists. I had access to their engineers. And we also had access to their finance people and, and, and their bankers. And they brought all of that together. Um, and the large venture capital firm was kicked out of the deal. They said they wanted in the deal and they would take my term sheet. And I said, no, you can't come in because you will not have the courage. You will not have the stability um, or the intention 
to stay through to the end because we're definitely going to hit problems in this. This has never been done before in the world. So it's, it's going to be tough. So we didn't let them in. Um, they were wiped out um, in 08 and no longer exist. The VC firm I'm talking about. Um, so, you know, the families that I were dealing, was dealing with, they have family offices. But it wasn't just about the money. I could bring them in because they had expertise, they had interest, they wanted to be involved, they cared about the projects. That's the kind of thing I'm looking for from investors. And that's part of the reason why I say it has to be a problem that I really care about. And I want to recruit investors who also really care about the problem. Do I want to make money? Yes, of course I want to make money. Everyone wants to make money, or almost everyone, but it can't be the only motivator. They have to care about the problem, and you have to balance your concern about making money with your concern about solving the problem, and no one of those things should override the other. That's the kind of thing I'm looking for in investors, people who can do that. Well, hopefully some folks will be reaching out to you. Once again, if you're listening to this episode or watching it, this is The Deal Flow Show, and you can get more episodes and also subscribe or follow us for future episodes at thedealflowshow.com. I'm J.P. Maroney. This is my co-host, Paul Nicolini. We have Peter Blaney on the episode with us. And what I'd like to do as we finish up, Peter, is if you could give out whatever the best way is for people to get in touch with you, if it's email, phone, going to the website, what would be the best way for people to reach out? Email is probably the easiest. It's, it's Peter Blaney, um, all lowercase, Peter, P-E-T-E-R, Blaney, B-L-A-N-E-Y, at Induran, I-N-D-U-R-A-N, ventures.com. Peter, uh, once again, we appreciate you being on the Deal Flow Show on behalf of Paul Nicolini. Myself, our team here at Harbor City and the Deal Flow Show. I'm JP Maroney. And once again, if you're watching or listening to this episode, you can get more episodes at thedealflowshow.com. We'll see you in another episode very soon. Take care. For more episodes, visit thedealflowshow.com and subscribe. 